listening to God and Comics, the show that comes out on such a weird schedule now that even those of us who make it don't know when it will be next out. On today's show, those fabulous blood-sucking fiends known as vampires. We talk about where these creatures come from in our literary tradition, what makes them such appealing characters, and how comics has contributed to their lore. And as always, we'll have our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. So pull up a chair next to the mirror and put a ring of garlic around your neck because this is one episode that you will really want to sink your teeth into. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michikin. I am chaplain at St. John the 23rd College Preparatory in Katy, Texas. On the line with me today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm the rector of St. George's Church in Schenectady, New York. And also on the line, uh, as always, Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm the rector of Church of the Messiah Episcopal Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Okay. One very brief note before we get too far in. Um, some of you may have noticed some infrequency in our posting lately. Uh, my computer, my lovely MacBook that I've been using to edit the show, has decided uh basically to to just implode on itself uh and so uh, i haven't been able to to edit uh father matt has uh, wonderfully stepped in to help with that so hopefully we'll be able to 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 do better in the future um but uh you know it's a free show folks it's a free show you get what you pay for um so we're going to start with our recommendation, um, and what I am uh, recommending this time out is the first volume of J. Michael Straczynski's run on the Fantastic Four uh, from around uh, 2005. I just, uh, just read this this past fall. Uh, I've kind of fallen out of regular week-to-week uh, -week comics and have just sort of started just picking up volumes here and there, and especially of stuff that I haven't really gotten into before. And Fantastic Four is not um, a franchise that I've, I've ever been terribly connected to. Um, but I love J. Michael Straczynski, and so I wanted to check it out. Uh, the artwork is, is lovely in it as well. It's drawn by Mike McCone. Um, and actually, I don't usually shout out the colorist, but Paul Mounts did the color for it, uh, and I think the color looks really lovely. I, I actually think Paul Mounts is a great colorist. It is a really sort of interesting weaving of stories together. If you know anything about the Fantastic Four, uh, well, if you know anything about the Fantastic Four, you know that... Uh, there are several terrible movies uh, about the Fantastic Four. But if, if you know anything about them as characters, you know they're sort of the first family of Marvel, uh, that that's actually uh, what uh, Stan Lee uh, was going for in their creation, was to have this kind of family that, that isn't perfect, that has a lot of kind of uh, struggles and dysfunctions and this, that, and the other thing, but really kind of comes together at the end of the day and is able to... Uh, be heroic, both in the sense that we're used to thinking of it, fighting the bad guys, but also in the sense that families are often heroic in their own way of dealing with each other and with the world. Um, and so this volume, I think, fits uh, squarely into that. We see a lot of sort of uh, family issues coming up. Um, we see uh, the family struggling to find money, uh, except for there's a lovely little subplot about Ben Grimm, the thing. Uh, while the rest of them have, have fallen on hard times with money, Ben Grimm suddenly has more money than he could ever spend in a lifetime, uh, which is kind of fun watching him try on suits and diamonds and <laughs> things like that. But uh, And we also see um, a little bit heart-wrenching uh, subplot about somebody from Child Protective Services who wants to take... Uh, the children of Reed and Sue Richards away, uh, Franklin and Valeria, because they're in an unsuitable environment to be raised, which, frankly, who can blame her, right? I mean, the Baxter building is being torn apart by evil forces just about every other week. It isn't exactly a safe environment for children to be raised in. So all of this is going on, and at the same time, Reed Richards is being um, asked to help the government uh, to do a, an experiment 
that hopefully will create a whole line basically of soldiers who have the same abilities as the Fantastic Four does because they've noticed that uh, the uh, same cluster of rays that, that uh, made them how they are are about to come together again. But what I found really interesting about this, besides just the, the lovely artwork and uh, the wonderful uh, writing by Straczynski, um, is the, the, the plot really starts to take off when they finally realize that these rays are, in fact, not just rays, but a method of communication uh, from this uh, alien entity. And when they answer the entity, uh, they meet this creature who comes to Earth to meet them, who is from this planet where he's evolved, right? He's become this, like, uh, ethereal almost sort of being uh, because he used to be a scientist on his home world and he was trying to discover uh, what lives at the heart of the universe and what the truth is about, about everything and was basically persecuted for it and they wanted to kill him for it, and so now he's he's trying to escape the people who want to kill him while at the same time trying to complete his work of finding out not just what the purpose of the universe is, but where it came from. But what I think is really interesting about this is there are a lot of kind of religious undertones to this, and what's funny about it is you, you can tell looking at it that, it, that it, it's taking what I think is a sort of typical kind of secular worldview of, well, religion is the enemy of truth, uh, and science is the way that we actually get to anything that really matters. So, of course, this guy, like our, like our modern priesthood uh, in our society, this guy is a scientist, and they can do no wrong, and they're, they're the ones who are going to find all the real answers, and religion is, is what wants to shut everything down as heresy. But if you can kind of look past that, you see a real yearning in this storyline to find real truth. And I, I just marked this one passage when he's discussing how he tried to, to convince his fellow beings from his planet that they needed to uh, join him in this exploration. And he says um, that that was his mistake uh, because afterwards they started to uh, persecute him. And he says, it's he says, it's because I believed that all beings, whatever their differences, whatever their beliefs, are drawn always to the truth, will recognize the truth when they hear it, and love truth more than their fears and prejudices. So, you know, it's a really, you know, I think we could, we, gosh, we could do a whole show on all of these kinds of ways in which this thing is accidentally pointing uh, to the gospel, uh, but um, I'll, I'll just leave it there for now. There, there's actually two volumes, so this this covers I don't know eight or ten issues. Um, he did another eight or ten issue volume that I I haven't quite finished yet because I made the mistake of buying it digitally, um, which basically means that I will never actually finish reading it. That's usually what buying things digitally means. I I certainly recommend the first volume wholeheartedly. Fantastic Four. I think it's just you know Marvel Premiere Edition. It doesn't seem to have any other title. Fantastic Four, but it's by J. Michael Straczynski and Mike McCone. Stravinsky, he's the, he's the creator of uh, Babylon Five, isn't he? He is the creator of Babylon Five. Yeah, he's done a lot of work in in television and in films and in stuff like that. Um, in comics, uh, he had a wonderful run on on Wonder Woman, which is how I first got to know him not long after what he did here with Fantastic Four. He also did this great Superman series uh, yeah. about where Superman yeah. basically like walks the countryside to try and find yeah. himself. It's, it's kind of, kind of fun. So I, I, you know, not every, he's not everyone's cup of tea, but I, I really like him as a comic writer. He also did a stretch on Spider-Man in the early aughts as well. Introduced some interesting concepts and kind of took Spider-Man in a, very different direction um than we yeah. had seen before well yeah, i feel like was quite he he likes to kind of take these things and sort of turn them on their head um and actually with fantastic four he does that less than i've seen him do it with other things but and one of the things i like about him is 
because he's doing these sort of outside of the box things, I think in some ways it's actually a little easier for a new reader to walk into it because it's so new and different that it's, it's going to be outside of, you're not going to have to walk in with 75 years of character knowledge with it versus like right now I'm in the middle of reading um, Kevin Smith's Green Arrow run, uh, which is like, I feel like I need an encyclopedia to follow <laughs> all of the references. That, I mean, it's, it's good, but you know, it's, it's much more, um, you got to be a nerd to really get into it. Okay, so we're going to move into our, our main discussion, which is about vampires this episode. And uh, we're very pleased to be joined for this discussion by uh, Karen Yulo, uh, who is an author. Uh, her most recent novel is called Cinder Alia, which is a, a lovely novel uh, about uh, a, a Cinderella-like character uh, that I, I highly recommend, but that has uh, nothing to do with today's topic. Uh, however, her previous novel, Jennifer the Damned, um, is one of my, my favorite uh, novels of the last couple of years, and it is about uh, a vampire, um, and so we wanted to have her join us and, and talk a little bit as we talk a little bit about vampires, and then we'll talk a little bit about vampires in comics. Uh, we met her at Doxicon uh, last fall and really enjoyed the talk that she gave there on um, the horror genre and the ways in which uh, it uh, actually, at least in the literary genre of horror, points us to the supernatural um, and to some of the truths of the gospel. So, uh, Karen, welcome to God and Comics. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. This is, I'm sure, a lifelong dream of yours to be on God and Comics, so we're just glad Absolutely. that we can... We can provide that for you. Um, so um, tell us, uh, le well, let's start with this, um, because I usually ask people this the first time they're on. So what experience, if any, do you have with either with comics or with like comic related, um, you know, franchises? So with actual comic books, basically zero. Okay. Um, I don't know, it just wasn't really ever on my radar, but I do enjoy a lot of the movies and television shows that have been made from them, mostly in the Marvel universe, but you know, I've seen some of the DC stuff as well. And I grew up, you know, coming home from school and watching and things like that. Okay. So, uh, tell us a little bit about Jennifer the Damned. Let's start with your book and then we can move on to... Um, I mean, it's the pinnacle of vampire fiction. So let's start oh, with that, you. and then we'll move, <laughs> uh, and then we'll move on to talking a little bit more generally about vampires. Well, Jennifer the Damned. It's the story of an orphan vampire raised by nuns. So you can get the immediate conflict there of someone who has been immersed in a very spiritual lifestyle and yet has this innate propensity for drinking human blood and believes that she has absolutely no choice in the matter because if she doesn't then she'll die it opens as she is just becoming a full-fledged vampire at the age of 16 having known for most of her life that this would happen and fighting against the urge to become what she must become and yet at the same time experiencing all the guilty pleasures that it brings and discovering that Hey, I actually enjoy this. And where do you go from there? Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a great. Um, well, first of all, just as a premise in general, I mean I don't you know I don't. It's not something you run across a lot. A vampire being raised by nuns. Um, not too often. But it's it's also just like um, a great kind of exploration of of really this this uh, sort of internal uh battle uh between kind of impulses towards evil and a desire to do good it's gritty it's real uh you know this is not a book that you should just like hand to your small children absolutely not <laughs> um and so i appreciated that uh that aspect of it as well uh, what made you want to write a vampire novel i've always enjoyed 
vampire fiction and, you know, Dracula, of course, being the pinnacle of that. But it also, at the same time as you read things like the Anne Rice novels, they're well-written. They're very good stories. They're very engaging. But when they come to the spiritual parts, it's, they, it's like it, it's always present. It's never not present in vampire novels, the spiritual element, where they have to talk about the consequences of being an immortal being who lives by sucking people's blood. They have to deal with it at some point. And nobody ever did it well, mm. <laughs> other than Bram Stoker, who made a giant mess of things, but at least took it seriously. And they'd always get to this point and sort of sweep things under the rug or in one of Anne Rice's books, I forget exactly which one, they deal with it by simply having the vampires go into a church and say, look, this doesn't have any effect on us so much for that superstition kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But they have to deal with it at some point in time. And nobody ever did it right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, do you not understand what this giant bowling ball of a thing that you have called vampire is. And the obvious truth is that very few of them did. So I said, well, I'm going to do my best. And I don't know if I can do this, but I'm going to give it a shot. And, and I'm going to use crime and punishment as my model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that's so interesting because I actually, I, I thought of crime and punishment um, at one point while I was reading it. Um, and I thought of Anne Rice. Like when I was a teenager, reading Anne Rice novels, starting with her vampire novels, was what kind of got me into pleasure reading, like just reading fiction for pleasure, which I'd never really done up to that point. You know, I, I, I really loved those books when, when I was um, that age. I kind of, you know, I don't know what I would think of them if I tried to read them now. I always think of that line from Flannery O'Connor where she says that the South is Christ haunted. Yeah. And I feel like that's a sort of a good description of Anne Rice in general. That's a very good description of Anne Rice in general. Um, even just as a human being, I think that's probably <laughs> Yeah, probably it seems terrific. like she's, you know, always converting and unconverting. Yes. Uh, has she become Eastern Orthodox yet? I feel like that's like the next stop on the train. <laughs> I honestly don't know. <laughs> Where do do vampire stories uh, begin, or do you know much about their their sort of origins? Not a whole lot. I'm not a scholar. Okay, I just, there's no problem. So I, I know that there's a lot. Of course, there's a whole folk tradition. You're right that this is something that comes up in a lot of different cultures and a lot of different cultural settings. The idea of the vampire there are different kinds of like myths about it a lot of which have have are basically just like starting with dracula as their starting point even if they don't realize that's what they're starting with oh absolutely and uh, and then just kind of building from from there and you get like so many different variations of that especially in the last um 25 years or so or 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 more of you know, vampires, whereas, like, if it used to be vampires were sort of these evil, always these evil creatures, you know? The kind of uh, Bella Lugosi kind of, like, uh, you know, things that go bump in the night kind of vampire. And then somewhere along the line, um, in the last, you know, 30 years or so, we, we get the flip side of that. We get, like, vampire hero characters that start to emerge. Yeah. And we get... The misunderstood vampire. The misunderstood vampire, sexy vampires, uh, psychic vampire, energy vampires, right? Like, isn't that the um, the Twilight thing? Is like, I don't feed on blood, oh, I feed on energy. Um, one of my... Uh, or, yeah, well, the Twilight vampires feed on animals. They, oh, they oh. Would they would rather feed on people, but they practice self-control but only feed on animals instead because if there's one thing we know about vampires it's that they have great self-control absolutely that's their, that's really their thing that's, that's what part of the about. mythology from the very beginning didn't you know yes um well I, i'm just like so why why do you all and i mean this is really open to any of you like why do you think that this has become such a the vampire has become such an enduring cultural figure all of a sudden. 
and even a celebrated one. Father Kyle is stroking his beard as he contemplates this question. I don't know. I think that's a very good question. I mean, I, I think you maybe alluded to something that might have some grounding in that. The fact that vampires have changed in our culture today, um, it's become much more uh, eroticized. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's um, an interest in that because it's an, it's a, it's a, another way of, um, of delving into the kind of psychosexual world that we all seem to inhabit today in, mm-hmm. in disguise. So, I mean, I, that's why I would think we're a little bit transfixed with it in the past few years, certainly with like the twilight stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's certainly a huge part of it. And I think it's, it's even a part of it going back to Bram Stoker. Uh, but I think that it has a lot to do with the kind of, emptying out of the spiritual uh, dimension uh, of, of life, um, the disenchantment of the world. Vampire novels are a species of romanticism. Really, I, I, think, I think that's where it, where it comes out of, right? The romantic movement um, and this kind of pushing against the cold rationalism of, of, the, of modern life. Even even with 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 a darker kind of kind of spirituality, and I think the the um, the idea of the vampire, you know, just thinking about from Stoker's Dracula, this exotic, eastern, uh, you know, frightening, horrific, uh, what wh- what would you call it? Um, folklore, but but there's there's. In the same way, people are fascinated by, uh, you know, Eastern philosophy and Eastern religion. There's 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 an exoticism to it that um, people cling to in in their hunger for spirituality, you know, in their in their search for something that that we've kind of uh, stripped off from our you know modern Western civilization. Um, and I think. The, uh, think vampires promise a lot of them with the added benefit of being like sexy and cool and right you know kind of fun yeah that's that's a good uh, yeah i think to me the reason vampires interested me more than say zombies or werewolves when i wanted to write a book is that vampires are really the ultimate anti-christ and anti-eucharist they do, they perform a very spiritual function that's completely inverted. Instead of drinking the blood of the one living sacrifice that gives life eternally from the, the one victim who was worthy of this, they completely invert it. And they, say, they take that and say, you know, we're going to murder and kill to achieve our own immortality as opposed to the immortality that is given through the sacrifice of the lamb. And so I think that a big part of the reason that vampires have emerged as the sort of monster du jour above and beyond some of the other choices is exactly what you were talking about, where society has begun to be emptied of the sacred and emptied of you know, beauty and goodness and these sort of ideas that were always wrapped up in that. And if you know that you have that hunger, but you don't know what it's a hunger for, you know, St. Augustine, the God-shaped hole and all that good sort of thing, you're going to see something like a vampire. It really, in a way, it comes a lot closer to that mystery than some of the other supernatural offerings that are out there because it's a perfect inversion. So I think that that's, and I think that's also why vampires have changed so much over the past several decades, is that there's a part of us that recognizes without recognizing that Eucharistic element of the vampire and needs it to be friendly and Mm. needs it to be okay for Mm. us to go toward it this way over here to the dark side of the vampire rather than going toward the truth and the light of the genuine Eucharist in Christ. You know what I find fascinating, and, and I think you're—I think you've really hit the nail on the head—is that with 
secular type people or even even you know once again going back to Bram Stoker's Dracula again with kind of you know low church Anglican type folks um, there's a fascination in vampire stories with this sort of exotic Catholicism and, and, and even Bram Stoker talks about like oh as you know as a, as a Church of England man you know I, I I found the the crucifix and everything superstitious, but mm-hmm. you know, here Van Helsing is like this occult kind of uh, figure from you know foreigner, and he has the Eucharist, and it's it's used with all this magical power to ward off the the darkness and everything. And there's there's this kind of uh, there's this enchantment with that. There's and, and it's very much a part of the vampire genre, you know. Suddenly secular people who would never darken the door of a church suddenly want to hold crucifixes and rosaries and holy water and things like that. All these very Catholic items that are foreign to a lot of the countries where vampire novels are popular, like the United States, or at the very least weren't part of the mainstream, at least at that time. Yeah, you notice that the church emblems and the church stuff that gets associated with vampires or is used to ward off vampires or comes with it is never like modern church stuff. Nobody's ever like, oh, Dracula's coming for me. I better do a quick liturgical dance and ward him off, you know? Like... No, no, it's always like, you know, crucifixes, incense, holy water, quickly. Exorcisms. You know? Don't forget exorcisms. Yes, exorcisms. No, just, to, just to bring the world of comic books into it for a moment, one of my favorite vampire figures in, in comic books is the confessor from Astro City. And talk about the, the combination of the vampire and the Catholicism. We have the confessor's uh, a Catholic priest was bitten by a vampire and has you know lived underground in this church for centuries and he comes out at night dressed all in black and he wears a huge white cross emblazoned on his chest to sort that 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 is, is sort of like penance but also is enough pain to distract him from his, his bloodthirst in the story, he has a sidekick, sort of like a Batman and Robin type situation, the altar boy. It's just this, uh, this sort of celebration of like a Catholic aesthetic, you know, in, in comic books combined with, of course, the mythology of the vampire. Um, that I mean, you can't write a vampire story like you were saying earlier without bringing something of that into it. To sort of take a, a slightly reductionistic approach to it, based on a lot of what you guys are saying, w- if we inquire as to the origin of um, the idea of vampires, you can see the origin coming right out of the Garden of Eden. If the quest is a sense of immortality to become godlike, that's the problem in Eden, is it not? At the serpent's at the serpent's call, and so um, you know the seeking of life and life in blood, which is what, um, what the Pentateuch says is that, uh, life is to be found in the blood, right? The quest comes right out of there and you can see the origins of the stories developing. There's even a comic book character called I Vampire that DC Comics had done a while back and they, they brought it back to life within run the new 52 run. But, um, part of the origin story of I Vampire is that he's a direct descendant of Cain. So coming out of the garden, Cain seeks life by taking his brother Abel's life, right? Life in the blood, and he receives the mark, and that becomes the origin of vampires. So you can kind of find that little thread that runs all the way back there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There is there is a, a a sort of theme, you know, thinking about what 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 Father Matt was saying. There is a sort of theme of vampire heroes who are conflicted characters who are trying to in some way shape or form do a sort of self-atonement project right where they're Mm -hmm. they're trying to atone for the fact that they have this terrible hunger that they have to satisfy to stay alive and so they try to in some way make some good use of that either they go after other vampires uh, or they only, you know, uh, Anne Rice's vampires did this for a while. They only go after bad people, 
um, or something uh, something of that nature because they're just they're trying to reconcile the way we so many of us are trying to reconcile desire for sin <laughs> uh, with our desire to view ourselves as good people and Karen I think that comes through a lot in your book too that that's something that Jennifer wrestles with uh, quite a bit thank you yes she does and Jennifer is at least honest enough to admit when it doesn't work but <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes that's that's meant to be one of the major themes is you know we're all we're all sinners and we all do what we can to justify our sin including saying well you know what i don't have a choice if i don't do this i'm gonna die she has just about the best excuse you can have and that's not good enough yeah this book would make like a really awesome graphic novel by the way like we should if you ever decide to explore that like sure yeah turning it into an artist uh (laughs) father matt uh (laughs) i think we found a project so uh Vampires have a pretty long uh, history in comics, but are kind of, you know, I mean, you see them even in some of the earliest comics, there were sort of vampire characters, uh, but they become one of the early victims of the comics code. Um, And, you know, when the comics code comes along um, in... um, Was it the the 50s where we get the comics code, or is it earlier than that? Yeah. Yeah. No, 1950s. 1950s. Yeah. You know, you're not allowed to depict certain things anymore. You're not allowed to depict certain kinds of uh, violence and so forth. And so, um, and yet the vampires don't go away. They just get, like, real creative about how they... <laughs> and so we get vampires who, like, aren't really vampires, but are at the same time. Um, you know, like, they they... they don't you never see them drinking human blood and they never actually get called vampires but it's sort of clear that that's what they are from the way they're drawn and the sort of like um way they are uh the way they go bump in the night uh almost makes me think of uh you know the count on sesame street (laughs) (laughs) which i always thought was so funny that there's like you know a vampire a, a bloodsucker is teaching all of America's children how to count. I think that's a, <laughs> that's a great thing. You know, and anyway, so, and, and that starts, those characters then start to, to shift a little bit, I think, when you get into the 1970s and you start to get um, some of the more um, uh, enduring um, vamp- vampire-type hero characters from there. I'm thinking... Uh, about somebody like uh, Blade, for instance, or as most people uh, refer to him, Wesley Snipes. Um, <laughs> He's got a new movie so in the works. The, 70s? Uh, the, the comic character does, yeah. He, he first uh, appears in Tales of Dracula. Um, oh. And, uh, it, but, you know, again, I mean, there you've got a character who... He's sort of a vampire, but he's also sort of not a vampire. Like, he has a really weird origin story about how he's got some of the things that go along with vampirism, but not all of them. And so, um, and he, you know, uses the powers that he's been given uh, basically to go and kill, uh, you know, other full-fledged uh, vampire characters and i think that that becomes kind of a hallmark of a lot of these characters for a while well well there was a there was a um a change in the comic code that suddenly allowed for um horror type figures like werewolves and vampires and zombies and stuff to reappear and and so like the floodgates were open and there was right around that time there was a lot of um, vampire characters in in Spider-Man, the first Gil Kane storyline introduced the the living vampire Morbius. Morbius is is interesting though because he's not a vampire whose power is occult derived. So it, it, so he's a, a secular vampire. <laughs> he's his his vampirism was created by science. It was a scientific accident. And, and, you know, he was infused with the DNA of a vampire bat or some such nonsense like that. And he, he developed these pseudo 
vampire-like ability. But he, I mean, he he looks the part. I mean, he's he's got fangs, and he even has the get up, but it's kind of like a jumpsuit, but it's black, and it's got a red kind of wing type thing that simulates a cape around the the head. You know, we, we see a lot of experimentation with the idea of the vampire after the the code is lessened. Karen, I, I, I sent you a few things about vampires in comics. I don't know. Um, I, I probably could have given you a far better list than I did. Um, but uh, did, did you happen to look at any of that uh, nonsense that I sent to you? <laughs> I did. I looked okay. at it. And I think kind of what I got a sense of is some of the things that you've already mentioned where the occult element got taken out. You know, they were sort of more like, hey, you got bitten by a radioactive vampire bat instead of a radioactive spider kind of thing, you know, where you've made it a little more scientific. Or I think there was one that had a virus that caused vampirism instead of mm-hmm. being, you know, there was very little sense of being genuinely undead, if, if that makes sense. You know, it's more like being infected than, than being genuinely undead. And again, I, there you're seeing that movement that you see in the culture overall toward these less evil, less scary versions of vampires than you would traditionally get either in the folklore or in the early literature and in, you know, Victorian penny dreadfuls and things like that. And I'm not entirely opposed to, obviously, from my book, to delving into the mind of, of these creatures and trying to take that different approach of looking at things from their point of view. But at the same time, you know, evil's evil. you got to call a spade a spade. There comes a point when that's just necessary. I, yeah, I agree. Um, and some of that, too, is like there's a lot of comic stuff um, that's been kind of like crossovers from other sort of worlds. So, like, there's a pretty huge uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer comic uh, following, for instance, um, in part because Joss Whedon has actually written some of those comics. So they have a little more street cred than your average like adaptation type thing would be um and it's been a place where those sort of stories have been continued i feel like we can't talk about vampires in comics without at least briefly mentioning vampirella who is such an odd character very very much like when we were talking earlier about the like quote unquote the sexy vampire very much like this cheesecake character in her origin right like she's originally created you know, really just to wear this silly looking spandex bathing suit type thing and, um, you know, uh, and uh, stand in uh, impossible and ridiculous poses. Like, I think that was her main purpose in the 70s when she was created. But there have been a couple of interesting runs of uh, stories with her in recent years where people have kind of tried to do interesting different types of things with her, one of which was by Kate Leth. I'm not sure if it's pronounced Leth or Leith. Do you guys know? These no, are these no. these these writers who I see their names, but I haven't actually heard them spoken out loud. Um, but she did this really interesting uh, run where where Vampirella. First of all, she gets a totally new uniform, uh, so uh, you know it's not sleazy looking in the way the old one was. Um, but she ends up in this situation where she's like in Hollywood and people are doing like monster and vampire movies and shows, but there's like real vampires like behind the scenes and, and monsters behind the scenes that are making uh, some of these things. And so she ends up having to like root them out. Um, and like that was so I thought that was an interesting storyline. Of course, the second she took over that book, all of the uh, angry fanboys on the internet started like complaining that she was ruining it by uh, giving Vampirella, you know, clothing and agency. Um, but <laughs> God forbid a woman should ever right. have clothing or agency. Yeah, neither of those things are, are good for America. <laughs> Uh, so thank goodness we have patriots on Twitter to tell us that. Um, and if you, if you want to fight with me, um, uh, my name is Father Matt Stromberg, and you can oh, contact me 
anyway. Um, but and then there's another there's another one where they just do these like because Dynamite owns the rights to her, so they just have her like show up in a lot of random stuff. And there was a series um, that was uh, Vampirella meets Kiss, the band no. Kiss, <laughs> and that's just fantastic. And I don't I don't that's think great. I have to say anything else about that, right? It's Vampirella meets Kiss. I mean, that's what great. more do you want to know? You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the more compelling uh, vampire characters in comics also has been Cassidy from Sure. Preachers, preachers are highly irreverent comic book. Probably be pretty offensive for most of our listeners. But um, Cassidy's an interesting take on the vampire. He's, he's sort of this... Uh, well, he starts off as a very likable sort of Irishman. Um, he wears shades. And, and, you know, he's kind of a rogue. You know, you, you really like him. And then he becomes extremely unlikable. And, and and his whole deal, I mean, you know, he sleeps in a pickup truck during the day, and he just covers himself with a tarp. Um, and mostly, he just eats his burgers, like really rare, and that's, <laughs> that's good for him. But um, but it becomes apparent that he's his 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 vampirism is it's more than just you know the fact that he occasionally bites the throat off somebody in a fight. <laughs> But he's he's a leech in, in more than one way, and it, it, in some ways his his bloodlust is the the least of his addictions. You know, he's he's a drunk, he's he's an addict, um, and he he completely uh, sucks the life out of the people that he's around and drags them down with him. And and so it becomes apparent that, that his, his vampirism is more of a metaphor than anything. He's just, um, he's, he's toxic to be around and he, he's, he's literally a leech, a bloodsucker. And, 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 uh, he, you know, I mean, he's a character with, a, with, you're not sure whether or not to just hate his guts or to really feel sorry for him. But yeah, I mean, he's, he's a very um, interesting take on the vampire and, and pretty funny and tragic and mm-hmm. all those things as well. You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm sort of thinking about this and putting a couple of things together in my head as we're talking. And, and one of them being so much of what we've talked about is how vampire stuff is playing on a kind of view of sexuality and that that's part of the appeal in the culture is that it, you know, that it has that aspect to it. The other side of that, it has violence associated with it as well and that those things kind of run together. So if you think about something like like something like True Blood, you know, <laughs> um, which is really kind of pushing those both of those elements um, to the extreme and that and that the the violence is itself uh being sexualized in a way right so it's not just this like you know horrific because um, there's always been something of that element of it i mean even when it was just like the vampire is like you see you know you see the shadow of the vampire overtaking the pretty girl you know that that she's about to be killed and you know that it's wrong and it's terrible but there's there's there was also something about a, a there was a bit of sexuality in that as well but i think what we're seeing now is this kind of explosion of these two things going together and it makes me think about in our society the kind of backwards way that we approach something like sexuality which is, you know, meant to be, I mean, it is, it is literally where life comes from. And in, in, a, in this context where we're talking about vampires, it becomes where death comes from. <laughs> it becomes, um, you know, wrapped up in violence and wrapped up in, like, the ultimate form of all that matters here is myself and my pleasure. Yeah, it goes back to the vampire being a perfect inversion mm-hmm. of Christian values. You take what is meant to be life-giving, quite literally, with sexuality, and turn it into something that is deadly, life-taking. It's a perfect inversion once again. We see that again. Rather than seeking 
true immortality through selfless gift we're seeking false immortality through mm-hmm. selfish desire and need and here it's the same thing just you know put onto a slightly different canvas with with the sexuality yeah this is this is slightly tangential but sort of connected to that um uh, if you want a good example of how completely ignorant our society is about uh, how you know what marriage is, for instance, and how these things all connect together, um, there was an article like a month or two ago in, I think it was like People magazine or something. I don't know. It was something that that Gina sent to me. Uh, I'm gonna make an excuse for why I was reading Variety or People or whatever it was. Um, but it was uh, Winona Ryder was being interviewed. Sure, that was the reason. And she um, she tells the interviewer that she's pretty sure that uh, she and Keanu Reeves are actually married. And the interviewer says, why do you think that you're married? And she says, well, you know, 25 years ago when we were together on the set of uh, Dracula... Um, they have a scene where we get married in it and to make it more realistic Francis Ford Coppola went out and found like a Serbian Orthodox priest who came in (laughs) to to do the scene with them and he you know said stuff and then they you know repeated the lines and she's like so you know since it was a real priest I guess we're we're married Yeah. Well, no, but you know, like, I mean, that's, that's like, <laughs> that's oh, well, I guess that's how that works. <laughs> like, it was just this, it, that, that's the level of like ignorance that we've, that we've reached, uh, that we just have no idea, um, you know, what actually, no, it's, you know, uh, all, all that happened, all that has to happen is you say these magic words at this magic moment. And uh, even if there's no wedding or anything else, it's just you know now we're married, and so we'll have to go back to. For a priest to the wheel, isn't it? I could just you know accidentally marry someone to. Right, right, (laughs) right. It made me think of this old bit that Colbert used to do on his old show, where he would like, um, he would do like gorilla baptisms, where he would. I mean, not really, like he didn't say the actual baptismal formula, but like he would just like sneak up on people at the water cooler and suddenly like throw water on them and go, you've been baptized. And then it would say it on the screen, but it was like B-A-P-T-I-Z apostrophe D. And uh, (laughs) like, no, that's not actually how sacraments work. You can't like just fall over backwards into it, you know? All right. Well, let me ask just one last question to kind of round out the conversation. What is your favorite vampire trope? Here, uh, le- here, I'll, I'll give you mine first, and then we can kind of go uh, around. I, I don't know if this is if this is a hundred percent my favorite thing, but I included it in the intro there. Uh, I think that the whole idea that garlic wards them off is like amazing to me. Like this supernatural creature that. Uh, you know, has all of this amazing power that can, like, bewitch me, that can suck my blood, but, you know, the same thing that makes my breath such a a, a mess that it wards off my wife uh, <laughs> can actually also be used uh, to ward off creatures of the undead. I just think that's uh, an amazing uh, literary thing. My favorite trope is probably this idea that... Uh vampires they have no reflection one would imagine they also uh would not i don't know what i i i usually think about this when i when i put my hand under one of those faucets in the bathroom and nothing happens you know like every time i think like oh maybe i'm a vampire you know like that Or if I walk towards one of those like automatic doors and it doesn't immediately open, you smash your face into the door. Hey, be undead. What a terrible way that would be to find out that you're a vampire. Like that's the way you discover it. Is I tried to get some water to wash my hands and I just couldn't. 
So like the whole idea of what would need to happen to the light waves for that to, for you to not have a reflection didn't occur to you. <laughs> no. no. I, well, I mean, you know, I mean, we've already because vampires cast a shadow. You know, we've already talked about the shadow of the vampire. You know, falling over the, the woman. Um, so why not a re, why not being reflected in the mirror? It, 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 it's, it's a puzzling sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it gives one the existence that they are, you know, only half real, that they're, that they're somehow a, an appearance or a phantom. I mean, they could change their form. They're sort of uh, malleable like that. Um, I don't know. It's a very intriguing bit of, uh, of folklore for me. And doesn't that... One that I put myself thinking about often. And doesn't that connect too to this like idea of the vampire as the inverse again of the of the you know Christian story that whereas you know um, we are made more ourselves in Christ uh, that he is like the true image of of a human being um, and the vampire is uh, so uh, beyond that as to not even be able to to be seen you know in reflection and so well, unable to sort of be self-aware as to not be able to see themselves i mean that that's a fascinating theory about that i mean yeah i mean he's they've ceased to bear an image they no longer bear an image uh, that's sometimes talking about by way of the the fall that human filed the image that they're cracked icons well the mm-hmm. The vampires pass so far beyond that that uh, the image is no, is no longer there. That they're damned in that sense. Yeah, they're empty icons. They're empty icons. Yeah. If you were to draw an icon of a vampire, it would be really easy because it'd just be this blank piece of board. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's, I mean, that that's kind of compelling, isn't it? All right, Father Kyle. What All you right. Got? So mine's probably stuck between two. I kind of dig they have the super strength and that they have hypnosis. Those are always the, maybe the hypnosis one is my favorite one out of it. Why, why is that? Do you just identify with Rasputin because you got a similar look going? I do. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Way to catch on to that. Would What would you use your hypnosis powers for if you had them? Uh I don't know what I would use them for. Nothing good. <laughs> Nothing good. That's probably what it would turn into, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that kind of power is too corruptible. Yeah. You'd probably just like like make your kid go to bed on time or something. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what it would be. Either that or I'd hypnotize people to uh, stay stuck in a moment so I could just go read comic books all day and not have to do any work. There you go. Karen, what you got? Well, I think... The power of the or the vampire trope that has the most uh, metaphorical potential was the mirror that we already talked about, and which I actually didn't use because <laughs> yeah. Jennifer has a reflection. Um, but of the ones that haven't been mentioned yet, I think I'm going to go with the one that I had the most fun writing was Super Speed. It's, it's sort of a personal thing for me just because I have exercise-induced asthma, so I'm like the slowest person on the face of the earth. So writing somebody who can actually like approach the speed of sound on her feet was a whole lot of fun. And I also had fun just imagining of like the physical consequences of what would be happening in the environment around you as you're going through the world at these speeds with no kind of vehicle to protect you. Mm-hmm. From the, so I had I had a whole lot of fun writing that one. See, Karen, you you're perfect for reading comics. I am. The, I just it's just I don't know. It never really crossed my radar when I was. I, and I do love comic book shows and movies and stuff. And I don't know why I never got into the actual right? books. Like there you go. Like the Flash, you just go right into the Flash and the Speed Force and all of That's that. That's true. Stuff. He and Jennifer would get along very well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Okay, well, so uh, we would love to know out there in listener land what you guys think about vampires, about vampires in comics, about vampires in other mediums. Um, And you can tell us all about them uh, uh, and all about what you think about them on social media. Um, Speaking of things that suck the life out of you, uh, social media, 
Uh, we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash God and Comics. We are also on Twitter, at God and Comics. Um, but we're not on Snapchat, because we have uh, just a small amount of self-respect. So um, you'll have to find us on Twitter or Facebook. Okay. But uh, we're going to move on to our final segment now. This or that, this, this or that. Come on, everybody, let's this or that. Batman or Iron Man? This or that. Spider-Man or Superman? This or that. All right, first one's going to go to Father Matt. Morbius or The Confessor? Oh, my goodness. Did you did you create this before? Well, I, I, I'm i going to have to say The Confessor. Um, the, the, I mean, I, that's probably, uh, in, in one of my favorite comic book series, Astro City, that's probably one of my favorite storylines. Um, Mor- Morbius is an interesting character that, you know, I, I, that I'd like to explore more. I mean, I know he's had his his solo series in the past and things like that, but um, he's just sort of been uh, kind of a, a vampire character that popped up in Spider-Man from time to time. In in my in my experience, I'd lo- I'd love to into who, who he is as a character. I'm told they're making a movie of him. Um, yeah, I thought I heard that as well. Yeah, Jared Leto is supposed <laughs> to play Morbius. Um, of, uh, because of what? what so all these Spider-Man characters. So yeah. they're going to, you know, uh, make a film out of everyone that they can get their, their hands on, I guess. Yeah. They, they've done Venom and now they have a Morbius film in the works. Is is that like uh, in in Sony Fox uh, world, or is that that's not going to be in the MCU? No, it's not going to be in the MCU. In their own, yeah, it's going to be Sony. So of course, it's going to be mm-hmm. horrible. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you well, know, a couple in, of the X Men movies are okay. Yeah, yeah, I think more than a couple, but <laughs> but think uh, about how much better they would be if they were made by Marvel. Oh, they're coming over. They're to coming Marvel. to Marvel. Yeah. And the other thing that I said earlier, but I don't think any of you all heard me, was um, that they're actually um, recreating Blade with Wesley Snipes, and it's going to be part of the MCU. <laughs> with, yeah. with Wesley Snipes? With How Wesley is he going to continue to play that character? He's got to be in his 60s at this point, isn't he? guess he's up for the task. They're in talks with him about... And they probably could fold the earlier two movies in too, you know, in some way. I mean, he could, he could just be like, kind of like a grizzled old vampire hunter. Yeah. Well, but, but doesn't he, I think, I thought one of the vampire traits he had was, was his, um, eternal youth or at the very least that he, he ages very, very slowly. The beauties of CGI. All right. Uh, yeah. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. All right. So the next one I'm going to give to Karen, actually. And this is the Bella Lugosi Dracula movie or um, the Bram Stoker from 1992, that vampire movie. The one where oh, Winona God. Ryder and uh, Keanu Reeves yes. became the one married where we're, forever. They got married, right. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to have to go with Bella Lugosi over that, <laughs> over that kind of nonsense. <laughs> Good choice. Don't hate on Gary Oldman, you know. No, he's a great Commissioner Gordon. He is a great Commissioner Gordon. He really was. All right, Father Jonathan, I'm going to give you one. This is not in the vampire realm. Um, Pulp Fiction or Kill Bill. Uh, Pulp Fiction, uh, mainly because I don't know that I've ever seen the whole of Kill Bill. I've seen, I probably have seen most of it just out of order. Um, out but, of order? Like you saw two before you saw one? No, like I saw like half of it at one point and then another third uh, of it at another point. And if I put them all together in my head, I think I've got a whole movie in there. All right, mm-hmm. on to the next this or that. Uh, Father Matt, I'll give you this one. Good Friday or Easter? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm going to have to go with Easter, obviously. Um, Good Friday would 
wouldn't be so good without Easter. <laughs> Put it that way. Um, especially if we're combining the Easter vigil and, and, and then the experience of Easter Sunday morning. Um, I, it, it doesn't get much better uh, from my point of view uh, celebrating the liturgy than, than those two services. Hey, Fa- Father Kyle, who's winning at this point? I don't know. I failed to keep points. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should That's lose points for, for uh, making us choose between two things that are impossible to separate from one another. Well, that Good was Friday and Easter? That was part of the challenge <laughs> of it, right? I'm not lobbing softballs here. I'm trying to give you some hard pitches. Would you like Jesus's human side or his divine side? That's one for you. <laughs> Do you so, like breathing so, or eating? Father yeah. Jonathan, your one is this, God the Father or Jesus. What? <laughs> what? No, that was a and, and that's terrible, too, because obviously the answer is the Holy Spirit. I mean, oh, so there's. You say so you shut the Father and the Son out and give it well, all because the Holy the Spirit. Spirit just tells so us what to you're do. You're really a crypto Pentecostal. I mean, right? yeah, the Holy Spirit just tells us what tells us what we need, and and that's enough. We don't we don't need the rest of it. If the Spirit tells me, you know, that I'm going to have a million dollars, I'm going to get a million dollars. Spirit tells me to have a nice day, I'm going to have a nice day. All right. Well, to pull us back, let's. Uh, I'm going to give. Uh, Karen, this next one. Wait, was that actually my question? Was God no, the Father? Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> You've answered. Uh, you, you'll get another one in a moment okay. um, here. Uh, Cadbury cream eggs or um, hollow chocolate rabbits? Cadbury cream eggs, absolutely. Good choice. I There's never no understood hollow chocolate. What's the point of hollow chocolate? If I want chocolate, I give me chocolate. <laughs> I, I used to get either. a hollow bunny. I used to get a hollow bunny without fail from my grandmother every single year, and it tasted like stale air <laughs> and chocolate. <laughs> I was told in a children's sermon once that the hollow Easter bunny was to represent to me the empty tomb. <laughs> oh, is that right? <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. I guess I draw the line at metaphorical chocolate. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's hard to reach for these relevant topics. Wow, it was, it was a pretty hard-hitting children's show. Yeah, I'm sure. That's like a good like. I'm gonna file that away for if I ever teach a homiletics class. As a good example of what not, not to, to do. do. Yeah. <laughs> All right, last one, Father Jonathan, in the okay. same vein. God the Father beans. or Cadbury cream eggs? <laughs> what, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, jelly beans or peeps? Oh, jelly beans. Definitely jelly beans. Now, having said now, that... Father Jonathan has lost. I'm not going to hate on peeps. I actually, I know a lot of people really are disgusted by peeps. I actually do like peeps. Um even though I can tell as I'm eating them that it's, you know, literally the worst thing that humanity has ever come up with. Like, I eat them and I'm like, oh man, this is like worse than like, this is like global warming and genocide and everything just like put together in one sugary concoction of fakeness, you know? Or like, um, like I just, like, it, it, you know, it's almost like if a lie were candy it would be a peep, you know? Um, and yet, I enjoy it anyway. It tastes good. What are wow. you going to do? Those are some so. hard words on peeps. Yeah. Have you ever put a peep in the microwave? No. <laughs> no. Is that legal? Is that legal? No, it, it, it's a sight to behold. Like, mm. It becomes like giant-sized peeps. Oh really? It expands like it's pretty. It's pretty incredible. And then it becomes like a flaming hot ball of goo that you send your mouth on. I don't even like. I, I think you could drop a nuclear bomb on that thing, and it would be like it just get bigger. 
funny. I kind of <laughs> wish now that it so was illegal. About, like how like you're digesting that. I mean, yes. Well, you see now they actually make um, peep cereal. What? Oh, wonderful! Breakfast <laughs> of champions. That's Man. right. It'd be great if it actually was illegal because then like I could like call in a tip to like the local Schenectady Police Department. Like you got to go. <laughs> Pick up Father Matt. He's got the peeps in the microwave again. That would be fun. They better have a warrant is all I'm saying. That's right. That's right. All right. That's all I have. Okay. Um, Well, uh, that's going to kind of draw us towards the close of our program here. Uh, Karen, uh, it's been lovely having you on uh, the program. Is there anything that you want to plug uh, yes, and of course, we've already plugged my books, so we'll call that done. But if you are interested in more vampires that deal with faith issues, you know, beyond just Dracula, of course, you haven't read Dracula, go read Dracula. But Eleanor Berg Nicholson has a wonderful book called A Bloody Habit that came out from Ignatius Press last year. And there's also a book called Death's Dream Kingdom by Gabriel Blanchard that's the first in a trilogy but only the first one is out so i can't plug the whole trilogy yet but that one is at least leading to some very interesting things okay is that last one from ignatius as well or no i've forgotten the publisher on that one but it's not ignatius okay that'd be great if it was i I like the idea that ignatius is just going to become nothing but vampire novels i I'm still like, if I ever actually, Eleanor and I are friends, but if I ever actually get to meet her in person, I'm just going to like bow down that she got a vampire novel, novel published by Ignatius Press. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a pretty good deal. Okay. Well, you know, thank you for being on the program. We really uh, enjoyed having you. Um, thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, stick around uncomfortably for a few seconds while we uh, close out the program. Um, so you can, uh, hear this whole program again, if you like, uh, see some of the links and all the other good stuff that we have on our website, which is godandcomics.com. Uh, feel free to drop by and check that out. Uh, our show is subscribable through, uh, all of your favorite, uh, podcast apps, but that also includes iTunes. Um, while you're on iTunes, if you would give the show a rating or a review, we very much appreciate it. Uh, it helps other people find the show. Uh, our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right now, is by Father Paul Wheatley, who, as a certified energy vampire, spends every night drinking cans of Red Bull. Until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michigan. I'm Father Matt Strummer. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. And we'll see ya.